Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by a special guest and a friend of mine, Dr. Howard Ehrman, who is the grandson of a Middle Eastern slave in Europe who escaped and taught Howard how to farm. His father was a UAW member at the Ford Torrance plant who went on strike in 1952. Howard has been a part of many organizing campaigns, including uh, organizing Illinois state mental health workers to join AFSCME from 1980 or 1968 to 1970, a community organizer to support African Americans and Latinos fighting to become Chicago Transit Authority bus drivers, 1969 to 1972. He was also the co-founder and organizer of the Rainbow Health Coalition, Black Panthers, Young Lords, Young Patriots, and Rising Up Angry for those who don't know, and Health Hospital Workers. That's from 1969 to 1972. Uh, he was on the Cook County Hospital House Staff Union, member of contract strike and negotiating committees in the 1970s. Uh, he organized and coordinated worker support for striking workers in Kentucky. Uh, he's organized City of Chicago workers. Uh, he's also the co-founder and board president of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization in Chicago from 1994 to 2008, board member until 2013. Uh, and he has also worked on many international health campaigns, including at Palestinian refugee camps, Nicaragua, Cuba, Tanzania, and Mexico. He is the former Will County Chief Medical Officer from 2013 to 2016 and the Assistant Professor of University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine and School of Public Health. There's too much stuff to name for you, Howard. <laughs> You've been a part of a well, lot I'm of 70, things. I'm 73, man. so I did. I've done a few things, like most people my age. So. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's start off. You're in Little Village in Chicago. Um, what do you, what's going on in the city now with COVID? The response. What kind of campaigns are you uh, engaged in currently? Well, at the end of February, um, several of us, and it's now grown actually to a network, we're not a formal coalition, but a network of about 21 or 22 organizations, uh, at least two of the Alder peoples, and that includes Jeanette Taylor, who I think you know of um, from the Diet High School strike, who became an Alder woman. Um, she was there today at a major press conference we had, as well as Alderman Byron Citro Lopez, who I know you know who he is. Um, and the reason we formed the People's Response Network was because um, at the beginning until today, you know, people want to put the focus only on Donald Trump. And certainly he deserves all the criticisms that he's gotten. But I think what we are trying to do is to say, look, we are at least 40 to 50 years into the era of the neoliberal stage of capitalism. And one of the chief features of that stage is the complete attack and decimation of the public sector. First and foremost, attacking public workers and first and foremost, public workers of color. This is why we have less African-American teachers in the United States for the last eight years than we had in 1954 at the time of the famous U.S. Supreme Court decision of versus the uh, Wichita, you know, uh, Kansas Board of Education. Um, in Chicago, for example, we are down to 18 to 19% of the teachers are African-American, even though the African-American student population is 35 to 40%. Um, we know about the attacks on postal workers, not just that Trump started, but that actually have been going on under every president 
um, pretty much since the wildcat strike of 1970, um, including under Obama. It was under Obama um, that they passed this incredible act by which the post office has to fund 75 years ahead of time all health benefits for workers who aren't even alive today. So when you hear that the post office is broke, uh, and you probably know that Danny Glover himself and his entire family worked in the post office, and he's the main social activist working with the American Postal Workers Union, um, it's a total lie. The post office is actually in the black, particularly since it's got the largest public contract in US history um, signed with Amazon five years ago. Um, so whether it's the post office, whether it's teachers, and now we'll focus on public health. What people have not heard and not read about, because it's actually never been written in any of the major uh, capitalist press except for a few lines, is that under every president, starting at the end of Jimmy Carter's administration, we have lost 100,000 public health workers, uh, mostly at the local and state level. Um, people think, um, for whatever reason, that the CDC and federal government has a large role to play in public health. They actually do not. Um, as you know, and I think all of your listeners know, we have no health or public health system in the United States. We're the only major country in the global north or global south who doesn't have a national health system or a national public health system. The closest thing we have to any national system is actually the best um, health and hospital system in the country, which may surprise your listeners to find out is the Veterans Administration. Um, you know, the right-wing RAND Corporation does studies every two to three years for the last 20 years and says over and over again that the Veteran Administration has the best health and hospital system in the country. Now, we also know it's under complete attack, you know, by the Democrats and Republicans. It's understaffed. Until recently, they had a 25-year-old computer system that's slowly being updated. Um, but the fact of the matter is we don't have any national system. And that was done, Vince. Um, again, I'm sure your, your uh, listeners know this, because of the great compromise um, that the 33 white males, um, almost all of whom were slave owners, made uh, with the Southern states before the Constitution was written and ratified. And that was what we call states' rights. So states' rights was done to preserve slavery so that the capitalists in the North, who were early capitalists, particularly the textile mill capitalists, we're going to make tons of money off of cotton in particular. But what that means for health is that 95% of the management of this pandemic is in the hands of state and local health departments. That's city and counties, as well as states, who've lost 100,000 public health workers. So if we could all imagine that on December 31st of 2019, the first day that the People's Republic of China officially notified the WHO of this pandemic, if we had had Medicare for all, which I think we all believe in and are fighting for, if we had had 350 million of the right test, not the wrong test, we still would have had tens of thousands of people in this country die because we no longer have almost any health workers out in the communities as tens of thousands of them were until 20 or 30 years ago. You know, in 1888, um, Jane Adams of Hull House developed 25 nursing stations in working class, primarily in those days white, but also African-American and Latino neighborhoods of Chicago. 
Um, these nurses with four nursing aides each went out door to door and they did stuff like stop typhoid fever, stop malaria, stop cholera, uh, teach people, you know, how to drink water that's pure as opposed to the stuff that was coming out of their tap and many other things. Uh, actually picking up the garbage was the greatest public health advance. Um, and so that was in 1888. We're now in 2019. And when I left as assistant commissioner, when I couldn't take Mayor Daley anymore in 1991, we had 2,000 employees in the city of Chicago who were in the health department and 57 facilities. We are now down to 458 employees and seven facilities. And the situation in smaller cities and towns like Michigan City, like Gary, like all of Northwest Indiana is worse than Chicago. Um, the mayor of Oklahoma City had to deputize librarians and crossing guards. This is Oklahoma City to become contact tracers and health educators in the last six months. So the situation we're in is a combination of purposely, you know, being taken under the wing and supporting neoliberalism by every Democratic and Republican administration and attacking you know, all aspects of the public sector, including public health. And there's just one other thing I want to mention. You know, the greatest gains that the working class in this country made uh, because of major struggles um, led by unions, by socialists, by communists, you know, particularly before, during, and after World War II happened between 1945 and 1970, as you know, in terms of actual standards of living, housing, jobs, whatever. And within that, the jobs that were most important for people of color to fight for were public sector jobs at the federal, state, and local level. So this loss of 100,000 jobs in public health and hundreds of thousands of jobs in teaching, in education, in the post office, et cetera, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs is not equal because in almost every big city, including New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, as well as smaller cities, we have seen exactly what we've seen as in teaching with Teachers for America, a whitening of the public sector, particularly at the administrative level. I was going to ask, how much of this do you think can be solved by sort of non-state entities, mutual aid efforts, community efforts, local organizations, and how much of this has to be solved by the state? And by the state, I mean the government at all levels. Well, I think that's a great question. I, I wouldn't expect you to ask anything less. <laughs> uh, I, I think it has to be both. So I think, as we know, there has been, in a positive sense, the development of thousands of mutual aid groups. Now, most of these groups do not call themselves mutual aid and solidarity. And I think a lot of these groups who aren't doing it on purpose, but just don't have the historical background or consciousness, not, not to say they don't have the consciousness because they're not smart enough, just haven't been exposed to it, are kind of taking the place of the state as opposed to pressuring the state to do its job. So what we need now in the era of pandemics that are gonna happen more and more frequently, in the era of climate change disasters that are gonna happen more and more frequently. For example, in the last three weeks, 
every part of the Midwest to one degree or another, air quality, whether you're rural or urban, whether you're in Michigan City or Chicago, has gotten worse from smoke 2,000 miles away in the greatest fires in the history of at least the European-occupied you know, United States of America. So what has to happen now and what the people's response is saying is we have to do both. We have to literally form what we call um, survival brigades, going back to what the Panthers did. Um, and I would really encourage your readers um, to read a book, which I could put in the chat uh, if you haven't seen it, um, that was written in 2008, which is a detailed history of all the survival programs that the Panthers did, not just health. So we have to develop block by block, house by house, school by school, church by church, you know, VFW post to VFW post, brigades of people from those neighborhoods who are going to pool their resources, right? But who are also going to place just demands on the state at the city, county, state, and federal level. In other words, I'll give you some examples. Before COVID, some of us were developing this idea that our main points of survival should be public schools. In other words, public schools should be retrofitted to have solar panels, to be made as flood proof as possible, to have health clinics, to have food storage, to have medicine storage points, so that whether it's a flood or a heat wave or the polar vortex, which could come any minute starting maybe as early as October, that people who either didn't have heat or didn't have air conditioning or whose house got flooded had a place to go. Well, now this becomes much more challenging because of COVID, because you're going to have to have social distancing. But people have to decide for themselves in their community, where are the best places for them to go to survive and to help each other? And I'll give you some examples um, from Cuba which is by far the best prepared country for all these things. Um, Cuba has incredibly detailed evacuation plans uh, and survival programs for in particular earthquakes and hurricanes. Um, that's why it loses less people in earthquakes and hurricanes by far than any country uh, in the earth, on the world. And sometimes nobody dies. So everybody on their refrigerator has a little map and a little text about where exactly they're supposed to go, who in their building, if they live in an apartment, is not able physically to get out themselves and who needs to be helped, and then where they should go. So I happen to be um, in Santiago de Cuba for an earthquake a couple of years ago, and I couldn't believe that within two minutes, everybody was out in the street or in a park with exactly where they were supposed to go. Well, they have drills. <laughs> Depending on the city and town, they have drills every month. And there's a national three days in May every year where they have these drills, <laughs> you know, that the whole country at the same time, all 11 million people do this. Well, we can't wait, you know, for the revolution and for the U.S. government or the state of Indiana or Illinois or whatever to do this. We have to begin to do this for ourselves. However, at the same time, we have to say and we have to demand and we have to sit in and we have to demonstrate and do whatever it takes to say, 
you are going to stop funding gentrification projects. You are going to stop funding corporations and you're going to use that money for public health, public education, public housing, which unfortunately has gotten swept under the rug by most of the housing advocates who love to talk about affordable housing, which to me is one of the greatest oxymorons ever invented in the English language and not talk about quality public housing. So the answer to your question is we absolutely have to do both. And in terms of COVID, what we've been proposing and which we've done at a very small scale is to organize, you know, health brigades like Cuba has. Um, and we need to have people safely distanced. We need to have PPE, but we need to go and knock on people's doors or ring their doorbells at a safe distance and say, look, you've got to get tested. You know, if you don't get tested and half the people who have COVID don't even know they have it because they have no symptoms, you can give it to each other. You can give it to your coworkers. You can give it to your grandmother, whatever. So that's part of what we have to do. Uh, so for example, uh, an organization we started about a year and a half ago, which is a grassroots group, not a 501c3, not going to be no political affiliation called Mi Vita. Um, we, we basically got the state and we got Walgreens to give free COVID tests and flu shots to 729 people in seven hours. Um, and nobody waited more than five minutes. Now that takes a lot of footwork. It's not primarily through social media. We, we use social media, but we understand in working class communities that face-to-face -face is still the most important thing to do. 100%. That's so important. That's a, it's an important point, uh, Howard, especially for younger people who are listening to this. And I think people are learning that more and more. As they do more face-to-face -face organizing, they get better results. Um, I wanted to ask you some of the challenges. I mean, you know, Sergio and I are fortunate enough to have friends all over the world that we talk to. So we're talking to people in Europe, Australia, uh, Asia, um, you know, places like Vietnam and elsewhere where, you know, the response to this has been much different. It's not only, it seems to me that one of the challenges we face is that the state has been dismantled by neoliberal capitalism, but also another challenge, sort of a cultural ideological challenge. And we see it here in a place like Indiana, uh, where we don't have the sort of in organizing infrastructure as say a place like Chicago has, is this intense uh, feeling of hyper individuality and this sense of like this warped sense of American freedom. Um, so, you know, even as we, as we talk to people overseas, they see what's happening in the United States and they're horrified. But as we talk to people in Chicago, they're horrified by what's happening in Northwest Indiana because we're showing them, you know, videos on our phone. Hey, do you want to see 300 people packed into a bar with no masks and no social distancing? Because this has been going on every single night for the past six months in right in front of our community center. I mean, it, if you came to Northwest Indiana, Howard, for the last six months, you'd have a hard time uh, sort of realizing that we're in a pandemic. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think about those kind of challenges? You have an international perspective. You spent a significant amount of time overseas in your life. Um, some of the unique challenges we face here in the United States beyond just the, the, the inadequacies of the state apparatus. Well, even though I'm 73, I'm an eternal optimist, brother. <laughs> and see, I don't think it's a cultural thing. I, I understand why people use that word, and I'm not critical of that word. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is the way I see it. So just to give you a little bit of my background, um, you know, 
I come from a working class family on both sides. My my father um, and his two brothers came home from World War II to a working class family. And like almost every working class GI after World War II, they didn't have their own place to live. You know, the only place people who got their own place to live until maybe the early 50s were people with money. So my my I was born in 1947 into a household a three-bedroom apartment above a pharmacy on 47th in Ingleside, which was a very different neighborhood than it is now on the south side of Chicago. And I lived with 10 adults. My father's parents, who rented the apartment, my father and mother, um, who were married then, my father's two brothers and a sister, my aunt from Egypt, um, and a woman from Italy, who my uncle brought over, um, no romantic relationship, you know, like all the GIs could. They, there was no question about papers, immigration, or any of that shit. I mean, it was basically like, you want to bring somebody on the boat, bring them on the boat. Yeah. So I lived in a household of 10 people, and that was not unusual, um, even for most white working class families in those days. So what's happened is, and I'm sure you're familiar um, with Eric Kling's, the guy who wrote the book about the heat wave, and then he wrote another book, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, about eight years ago called Living Alone, um, which Klein, Eric Kleinberg is, he's a sociologist. Um, and he kind of defends the idea that it's okay to live alone. One third of Americans, this is right before the crisis in 2007, 2008, the housing crisis. And things have changed dramatically since then. But he was saying it's okay for a third of adults to live alone. And I knew him a little bit before that. And I corresponded with him. I didn't read the book. Uh, I just heard him on NPR or something. And I said, no, Eric, it's not okay for most people to live alone. If you believe in evolution, we have been looking like this for about 350,000 years. And we never lived alone until the last few generations. So why is that? Why? And of course, it's changed dramatically since the housing crisis, because now 35% of people under 35 have moved back in um, you know, with their parents, which I overall think is a positive thing. I, I think the reason that it happened was negative, but I think it's positive because I believe in multi-generationalism. And I think what's happened is that if you're a capitalist, whether you're, you know, the Apple executive trying to sell an iPhone or you're selling whatever, that if you can sell, you know, one to everybody, <laughs> that it's a lot better for your bottom line, right? right. Than if you have, you know, like I grew up and we didn't have our own phone line till I was about 11. We didn't have a car till I was 10. So we picked up the phone and it was a party line. You know, we sat, we stood on the corner for no more than five minutes and got on a bus or a train. <laughs> you know, this was the way life was. And if you ask most of the people under 50 that you know, when did the majority of American families get a car and you tell them it was 1967, they'll freak out. Sure. So it's only like 50 years ago that the majority of people had a car. And in places like Chicago, you know, 30, 30% of people don't have cars. In some neighborhoods, it's 50%. In Northwest Indiana, that train that they're now going to double track, you know, in other trains, there were all kinds of trains running through Northwest Indiana. And they just weren't just to Chicago. They went to Valparaiso. They went to Indianapolis. They went all over the place, you know, and 80 to 90% of our urban rail was destroyed, you know, starting after World War II. So the whole 
idea of having a collective society of people doing things together, whether it was walking to the bus, taking the same bus to work or school, taking the train, you know, doing things together, that's all been under attack for the last two generations. And it's gotten worse. However, capitalism is filled with contradictions. And what's happening now in particular, starting with the 2007 housing crisis, is the contradiction of capitalism self-destroying most people, not the, not the wealthy, but most people, is pushing people back together. Now, does that mean that everybody's gonna do the right thing? No, because during the last two generations in particular, the cultural aspect of your question is that fascism, or if you wanna call it neo-fascism, or individualism has been the primary thing pushed by major academics, intellects, by the way society has been restructured in your lifetime, because you're young enough to experience the whole thing. It's been intentionally restructured that way, right? So we know based on the University of Texas studies that are very well done, that come out every year, that 82% of Americans drive in a car by themselves to work, to the store, to school, you name it, okay? That's not the way it was even 20, 30 years ago. You know, I, I've taught a lot of international students at, at University of Illinois at Chicago. I also taught Knox and DePaul. And one of my favorite students was someone from Ghana who came from a kind of middle-class family. And so I, I was asking all the students, particularly international students, what was the one thing that really struck you when you got to the United States? And what she said, this is like 10 years ago. She said, it's the way that people don't share space, public space. So I had a friend who was the first person that we knew who got a car when I was about uh, 14 in high school in Ghana. And she said, it, it was like a little bigger than a VW bug and maybe 10 of us got in that car. We used to do the same thing 50 years ago. You know, um, I took a trip to Puerto Rican independence, the biggest event ever held in the United States. I think it was 72 or 74 in Madison Square Garden. And there were six of us in a VW bug that drove 900 miles in freezing <laughs> temperatures to, to New York City. That wasn't unusual then. Right. But, and, and so I think rather than place the blame on the individuals, like the people in the bar across the street or whatever, the blame has to be placed on you know the, the forces that be of capitalism that are cultural, political, on the TV, on people's smartphones, whatever way they get the messaging that the way to go is individualism and then connect that to Trump. Trump's not the first person to do this, but he's the most powerful one, right? That the most important thing is your individual freedom and your individual freedom is basically defined by your right to defy anything that looks like it's gonna to be to the benefit of the masses, okay? So you can bet that the parents or grandparents of those people across the street in the bar are probably much more like less likely to be like that than especially if the grandparents grew up during or after World War II or even during the Depression um, because they went through life experiences. For example, Victory Gardens. One third of all the vegetables in the United States from 1941 to 1945, one third of all the vegetables consumed were grown in Victory Gardens, including where you're sitting Michigan City, Gary, Northwest Indiana, 
these victory gardens were not just in cities. They were in rural areas. They were in small towns. And people did this collectively, not just individually. So I'm a big believer in humanity. And I think, yeah, we could get into fistfights with the people across the street or arguments or whatever. And that's going to happen because I hope we have time to talk about, you know, how Trump is trying to really mobilize fascism very similarly to Hitler in terms of burning down the Reichstag in the next six weeks. Um, but I think what it is, is that the best way, yes, we're going to have to defend ourselves to a certain extent or to a great extent, but the best way is for us to do things collectively to show them that your solution doesn't work. We know that so far five people have died from, I can't remember the name, but you maybe know that huge motorcycle event in the Dakotas. Yeah, Sturgis. So five people, not from Sturgis, one person from Sturgis has died and four bikers died so far. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot more that die. So, you know, what's happening is that Trump and, you know, he's not the, you know, he's not the main thinker on this, but all, all the fascists that surround him and that support him are willing to sacrifice. This is the most important thing the 99-plus percent of people who are disposable, including their supporters. You know, you, you had the lieutenant governor of Texas, you know, five months ago get on and say, you know, in terms of her, her immunity, a lot of old people are going to have to die, Yeah. you know. <laughs> and now, I don't know if you read that article um, in, in, in Jacobin last week, but now we have two leftist Harvard School of Public Health professors who promoted immunity. I wanted so, to ask so, you about that. I'm, I'm really worried about that. And I saw this coming because, and I'm not going to name any names, but Sergio and I obviously have spent the last few months uh, since the community center has been closed as it normally operates uh, and has been converted to an audiovisual studio interviewing a lot of our left-wing friends and organizers, <laughs> academics, and, and so forth. And I started to hear these rumblings back in May and June from some really well-respected left-wing intell public intellectuals. Uh, and then I saw it articulated in Jacobin, and it really concerned me. I d if you could touch on some of what was mentioned in that article, Howard, and also I'm sure your frustration um, at people sort of peddling, I think, concepts and ideas that they might not fully understand or, you know, like getting this information, this is misinformation out to people right now. When it's really critical, I think, for the left to have like a very principled, solid stance on this. Yeah, so I just wanted to finish real briefly with the, the other thing. I, I think that the best way to defeat the right, um, and including people sacrificing themselves, because those people across the street at the bar, some of those people are going to die if they keep doing that yeah. from COVID. So, so I think the best way to deal with that is, and everyone has to decide individually and collectively how and if it's possible to do, but it's not a question of possible. It's a matter now for survival because the intersection of COVID-19, of climate change, and many other things, of massive unemployment, of evictions, of gentrification, they're all here right now, and it's going to get worse. And the only way to combat that is through different types of collective action. And there can't be a cookbook formula for this. You, you and Sergio have to decide, you know, based on all the great work you've done the last several years with your center, what is a small thing you could do? See, I'm a great believer in small victories. 
you know, you're not going to have major victories if you don't have small victories. So, for example, if you can get, you know, the state or the county health department or Walgreens, who we need to put a lot of pressure on or CVS to say, your center outside, while it's still above freezing, is going to offer free flu shots and free COVID-19 tests, and you're going to mobilize people to get them, that's a step in the right direction, right? You're not going to go across the street right now necessarily and get in a fist fight with the people not wearing a mask. You're going to say, hey, come over here and get a free COVID test, you know, get a free um, uh, flu shot. We also gave out uh, masks and gel at this event where we had 727 people. But to get to the herd immunity and other um, kind of false science that's floating around, I think what's important here is to talk about anti-vax first as the first example of false science on the left that became very popular. So for a series of reasons I'm not gonna go into, I was invited to a private meeting with Jill Stein um, at the 2015, I I don't like to go to a lot of those big international events um, because I think that most people who go there don't have any base and they show up mainly if they're from academia, but even if they're from left-wing organizations, you know, and they espouse all this stuff and you say, okay, who exactly are you working with from where you come from? And 95% of them aren't working with anybody. Yeah. And I just consider that really hypocritical. But I went to this one because I got invited by a lot of people in the climate movement um, I've gotten to know the last 30 years, um, particularly from Bolivia and, and the global South, South Africa and other countries. So I went there and it happened to be, you know, Jill Stein went there um, and, and she went there, you know, with the person who was, prime minister for a while from the Labour Party, <laughs> who wasn't prime minister then from the UK, who I knew before he became a member of parliament because my Egyptian Moroccan side of the family, part of them moved to England after World War II. <clears throat> so I knew Jeremy um, before that a little bit. Um, and, you know, I had this private meeting with six people with her. And, you know, I thought, okay, some of your positions are good, some are not. Um, and then I found out when she came to Chicago that she was an anti-vaxxer. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. She's a pediatrician and she's a damn anti-vaxxer. Yeah. And <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, and so what's happened, I think, is that you've had the infiltration intentionally or unintentionally of the left with some very, I would say, um, false science ideas that get mixed up in people's mind, right? And so that's actually didn't start with anti-vax. You know, if we want to go back even further, I happen to be lucky in my life in a lot of ways. One way was to end up at Washington University between 1965 and 69. And one of my professors there um, who wanted me to work with him was Barry Commoner. Um, And basically, um, do you know what Barry Commoner was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Barry Commoner was actually probably the most important environmentalist in academia um, in the 20th century. But the reason he was wiped off the face of the map um, by the big greens like Sierra Club, Greenpeace, whatever, is because depending on what period of his life, he was also a Marxist and a socialist. Um, But Barry Commoner did more to clean up the Great Lakes than any one person. All the PCBs, all the other toxins that existed, you know, he worked with groups, including a lot of groups in Northwest Indiana. I don't know if any of them still exist, um, and Michigan and Wisconsin, whatever, to clean up, um, you know, 
whatever you think of Lake Michigan now, it's a lot better than it was in the 60s. Um, so <clears throat> what happened was, is that very commoner, it ended up having debate, having had debates on about 162 campuses with Paul Ehrlich right after the population bomb was first published. I think it was 68 or 69. So I happened to, be, he asked me to go with him on some of those debates. Um, and at the beginning of the debate, you know, Paul Ehrlich was much more known than Barry Commoner, although Barry Commoner was quite well known in academia then. And and I, I made the suggestion to Barry after the second and third debate, let's do a pre and post poll. So we did a pre poll of how many people thought that Paul Ehrlich was right, that the main <clears throat> the main factor in the survival of people on Earth was overpopulation. And there wasn't one time that at least 70, 75% of people agreed with Paul Ehrlich before the debate started. And after the debate, 85 to 90% agreed with Barry Commoner. So what did Barry Commoner do? Barry Commoner worked with dozens and dozens of anthropologists, sociologists, and population demographers from the global South, not just from the global North, from both, who showed that there was no time in history that people stabilized their population growth until they had economic security and felt like they were in control of their lives. So of course that happened in the global South post-World War II um, when you had national successful national liberation struggles. Um, and you had two the two most important factors. Now this happened after very commoners debates um, we know now, starting in the 80s, that the two most, the late 80s, the two most important factors are at least every woman having a sixth grade education and having complete access to every form of family planning. If you have those two things, even if you don't have economic security, which was true when Barry Commoner was debating, you can get population stabilization. Um, but if you don't have those things, um, because of the exploitation of women and many other factors, um, then you're going to get population growth. So, so this was the first time that people really took up, you know, Malthus and 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 Malthusian ideas from the right, who were on the left, because there were lots of people on the left in the '60s, '70s, until today, including people in the all the big green groups. Like if you remember 10 years ago, Sierra Club had to have a formal vote around the question of immigration because close to a majority of their board wanted to take a complete anti-immigrant position um, that basically that was the first incursion, you know, I remember of false science into the left. And then comes anti-vax starting, you know, with the whole fiasco of four couples uh, where either one or both of the couples were professors at Oxford in 1987. Um, and, and in those days, the DTP vaccine, which is now what we call an acellular vaccine, it wasn't, it wasn't acellular then. So there were, out of hundreds of millions of doses, you know, a half dozen to a dozen kids who died from DTP. There was, that's true. But when the Oxford professors who started the anti-vax movement, not the doctor, um, <clears throat> you know, basically then said publicly 
that they were not going to vaccinate their children, then hundreds of thousands of English families and other families in the UK in the occupied territories of Wales and Scotland stopped vaccinating their kids. Um, and the next year, 2,500 children under the age of one died from whooping cough from two who had died the year before. Jesus. And it just got worse after that. So um, the, the anti-vaxxers, you know, have, have combined sort of historically with the last 60 years of, you know, we're going to do stuff the natural way. If we eat organic foods and we go out into the forest and we do exercise and stuff, we have enough natural immunity. Um, the problem with that hypothesis, which is completely false science, is that we've had 350,000 years of evolution and there was no such thing as natural immunity to any of these diseases before the vaccines were invented, whether it was smallpox or measles or mumps. So, you know, tens of millions of people have died <laughs> and most of them are children. So, so now we're, we're in this era of herd immunity. So herd immunity has two origins. It was first used because smallpox was originally transmitted from cows among cows and then from cows to mostly women who did the milking in England in the 19th century and before. So they would touch the udder of the cow and they would get smallpox and tuberculosis transmitted that way. So smallpox is origi was originally cowpox. It, it, you know, so it, it's one of those things that did move from animals to people before the 19th century. But, it, but this discovery was made in the 19th century. And then people started giving smallpox vaccines um, in different ways. So the idea was if enough of the cows either got smallpox and survived or then eventually got vaccinated into the 19th, 20th century, if 80% or more is usually the figure that's used, then it would protect the whole herd of cows because it would be hard for smallpox to break through if four out of every five cows had it. Then it was used in the 20s and 30s again when vaccines started becoming more common. Now we know, um, we don't know exactly what percentage of people have to get COVID-19, but the, the estimates, including by the two in quotes leftist you know, School of Public Health Harvard people wrote in the article in Jacobin is like up to 90%. So if we have the fact, you know, that we've had over 200,000 people die in the United States and maybe 4% of the population has gotten infected, if we multiply that times 20, okay, times 20, we're going to have 4 million people die to get herd immunity. That's a low estimate because right. we know realistically at least a half million people have died already yeah. um, because deaths at home are not reported for most cases. Deaths at nursing homes, which are primarily corrupt for profit, are not reported in most cases. So it, an easy guess is that instead of 201,000, we've had a half million people die. So the question then for the, the people who, you know, you may know, who say what's wrong with herd immunity or those two, um, one's an epidemiologist, one teaches something else, um, is like, all right, so you're ready to have four to five million people die to get herd immunity. Um, and again, that's a lowball figure. The other thing that, that are major aspects of false science in that article 
is that young people and kids don't get sick. Um, and, and so the first thing that's wrong with that is that any school, college, or university is not just an education place. It's a workplace. And the only data that we have in the United States of how this disease is formally transmitted was an accidental release of one month of, of contact tracing data from the state of Louisiana. Somebody accidentally, I don't know, or maybe purposely put it up on the web someplace. So we know from that one set of data that 90% of the transmission vents is in the workplace. Yes, it's wrong to have house parties, whether it's, you know, or bar parties or whatever. And yes, transmission happens there, but it's primarily those people in meatpacking plants, in nursing homes, in hospitals, farm workers, auto workers, Amazon workers, that's where most of the transmission is happening. And 50% of those people don't know they have COVID, then they go home and maybe they stop at the store on the way and they're giving people COVID. That's where it happens. Um, So that's the other thing that's really wrong about their whole plea to reopen schools. They take the idea that working class people are being hardest hit by schools being closed and other place business. And the answer to that is, yes, that's absolutely true. But the answer to that is not to reopen either a business or a school. The answer to that is to march and occupy and force the state to give the support financially, housing-wise, and everything else, food-wise, to what people need to survive at least the next six months until a vaccine becomes available. I was going to ask you next, one of the doctors that we've been following and sort of promoting on the program is Dr. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota. And he he had spoken recently pretty positively about the prospect of the vaccines that are going to be coming online. He hopes soon as well. What would your advice be? And I know this is difficult because you, you know, I'm assuming you'd be reluctant to just simply tell people, or maybe you're not. I'm just kind of wondering what your advice is to people thinking about this right now. Um, and I know and there's a number of issues even with regard to who's going to get the vaccine, how will it be distributed, who's going to produce it, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say that people have an opportunity to take this. Would, would you would you recommend that people do that? Is it something that you would be willing to do right away? What is your sort of thinking in, in, in terms of what's uh, coming down the pipeline for vaccines and so forth? Uh, I think that uh, Michael Osterman is an excellent physician um, who really knows his stuff for the most part. Uh, He also likes to put his face in the media. Um, And he says things at certain points and at certain times that should probably be couched more in a more detailed scientific basis. So the first thing I would suggest your your, uh, listeners do is after this discussion today, um, go on YouTube and type in Jonas Salk, that's S-A-L-K, gives the polio vaccine to President Eisenhower in the Rose Garden. So Jonas Salk was the inventor of the polio vaccine. The reason that polio was such a big deal in the United States is because it crippled and killed a lot of white people when the majority of white people were working class. Um I was one of them. I got paralyzed for six months from the waist down. I was totally lucky and totally recovered from polio, but I got polio before the vaccine was available. So Jonas Salk was also a socialist 
And it's, I don't think it's found in any of the YouTube videos, but he said literally before every camera of every paper and news station, there weren't that many then in the country, that only the United States government and universities that it contracts to, public universities, should ever make, produce, and distribute vaccine. That only the United States government and public universities. And I think a lot of your listeners know that to this day, 95% of all major medications and vaccines have been invented in public universities. How about this? You know, a few hours away from where you and I are sitting is the University of Illinois at Champaign. And if you, I ask my uh, students this all the time, where was the civilian internet invented? And they say, oh, well, the army invented it. I said, yeah, yeah. but the, where was the civilian internet? And you say, by graduate students and professors at the University of Illinois. Where was email invented the way we know it? By graduate students at the University of Illinois. And then one of them, you know, became a capitalist and he was not the one who even did it. I can't remember his name, the guy in San, who went to San Diego and Qualcomm guy, whatever his name is. <laughs> he was kind of a mediocre graduate student. But of course, the rule is in the United States is, oh, universities aren't supposed to make money or produce anything. They're just supposed to invent it. And so before you were born in 1970, 85% of all, not just science, but of all funding to universities, to public universities, came from the federal government, 85%. Now we're down to 12 or 13%, and the rest is from private capitalist corporations. So why am I saying this? So I have no confidence that the CEOs who signed that letter last week saying that they're going to make sure that phase three studies are done and the 30,000 people minimum or, you know, 60,000 people minimum. I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe in it, but I don't believe they're going to do it the right way. I don't care if it's so, you know, Oxford university is doing this in conjunction with the private corporation. That's the one that they stopped the vaccine trials because the person got a, at least temporarily neurological deficit. Um, I don't believe that any of the vaccine trials in the United States are going to do things the right way, even if Trump loses the election and gives up the presidency, which is a big question mark to Biden. Um, so my advice to myself, to my beloved wife and three children and four grandchildren and everybody else in my family and my friends and comrades is very simple. Um, number one is we have to fight like hell starting yesterday, not today to make sure that that vaccine is made available to those who are most affected by this disease. So that means every zip code in the country where the majority people are people of color and working class, both rural and urban, that's gonna be a hard fight because that's not the way it's gonna happen, okay? The way it's gonna happen is they're gonna roll it out to first responders and first responders originally meant public health people, but since there's no public health people, first responders means police and firemen. I have no problem with them getting the vaccine. What I have a problem with is, you know, they're getting it ahead of health workers a lot of times <laughs> who are in emergency rooms. So we have to fight like hell that health workers, including EMTs, you know, get this first. Um, 
And then, you know, we can talk about the fact that, okay, the rest of the fire and, and police should get it, but, but they shouldn't get it ahead of those communities who have lost hundreds and thousands of people in one neighborhood, <laughs> you know, so we've got to fight for that. But I don't think that people should get the vaccine until we've actually seen it out there in public for about three months, which is going to be difficult because that means three more months of doing the only other thing we can do. And that is keep a mask on and social distance. And that's another thing we need to talk about because most people think if I got the mask on, I don't have to stand six feet away from somebody. Or if I'm standing six feet away from somebody, I don't need to put the mask on. I'm sorry, but we got to do both, particularly now that we're going to be moving more indoors where it's 10 times more easily to get the, the disease than it is outside. Um, so just at this point, I'm a believer that yes, everyone should get vaccinated, but no, I'm not going to jump to the front of the line. I'm going to wait. Understood. I was going to ask you a question about the sort of medical profession. Now there's a lot of, it's interesting to me being someone who's totally ignorant to this. I mean, I was not trained in the medical field at all. So over the last six months, I think like a lot of people who are trying to understand more and more about the virus, how to respond to it, how we deal with it, um, you know, there's people like yourself who seem very concerned and very thoughtful about human life. There's other people who I see on not just corporate media channels, but even in op-ed columns and so forth, who seem to sort of process this in a very cold manner um, that... It, it might be okay that we lose 4 million people or that there's, that there's these sort of other like underlying ideological factors that might be playing a role. And I'm thinking of somebody like Osterholm who we've been getting decent information from, of course, but who sort of depoliticizes or decontextualizes everything, right? which doesn't give you much of an insight into what we should do about where, or where we go from here. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering if you have any thoughts on that. And if you don't, it's just something I was thinking about, you know, as you were speaking, you could listen to two different people from the medical field sort of talk about these issues and they might sound fundamentally different. I think that's confusing for people. Well, I would, I would sort of, um, you know, say that people in the field, I would broaden it that it, we should talk about medicine, health, and science. I would say that um, people in those fields are pretty much a reflection of everybody else. Um, except, of course, particularly in the post-affirmative action days of the last 40 years, and it's gotten worse, and then, in fact, of how much it costs to go to school, right? That now people are whiter, and sometimes the direction is even going back to more males again, um, depending on which field you're looking at, because as the economic crisis deepens, it gets to be more and more of a luxury of who goes to school in the first place, even community college, right? I think, you know, clearly you know that, and so are your listeners. So I happen to be old enough that I was part of the, you know, they're really, in the, in the 20th and 21st century, there's only two waves of really progressive people going into science, health, or medicine. Uh, one was when the greatest period of the left was um, starting in 1920 um, with the formation first of the Communist Party, the unification of the two Communist Parties into one, and then the unification 
of the Communist Party, what was left of the International Workers of the World, the Socialist Party, and other left groups, Trotskyists, who formed the most important um, formation we ever had in history, which was the United Front from 1920 till the end of 1935, those 15 years. So during that time, and then right afterwards for a while, um, there were a lot of people who either were leftists before they went to medical school or whatever science or health field they went into, or they became those in school. The second period was the 60s and 70s, maybe into the early 80s, where you had a lot of us who came out of, you know, either the anti-war movement, uh, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the Marxist-Leninist movement, whatever movements we came out and we went to school in one of those areas, science, health, whatever. So I think it's very interesting and a, quite an important phenomenon that one of the two authors of that article, which is completely wrong on herd immunity, was actually a founding member or a, a, at least joined Science for the People um, you know, in its first round in 1970. And it was a very important organization. And, and now that it's been reborn the last few years, it's still important. So it's very telling that she was a, you know, it's, I think it says that at the beginning of the article or at the end, and I don't remember her name, I'm sorry. You know, and yet she takes this position, right? So, so, so you had those two periods. For example, um, most, time, most of the time since the beginning of the 20th century, the University of Illinois at Chicago has been the largest medical school in the country, actually competing with Indiana University in Indianapolis. So almost all the time, one of the two universities is, actually has the largest number of students. And when I went to um, started school, which was 50 years ago this month, a couple of weeks ago was the 50th anniversary, we had 275 people in our class. And that was the first year that affirmative action had really kicked into high gear. And that meant a third of our class were people of color, which may not seem like a big deal now, but that was a huge thing. And I'm not talking about students from other countries. I'm talking about African-Americans, Latinos. We had a couple of Native Americans, et cetera. Um, and a third of our class were women. So that was quite different than even the year before. Okay. So we had a bunch of leftists and we all, you know, kind of thought similarly. And we did a lot of different things, which we could talk about some other time if you're interested. Um, and a lot of us went into medicine because we were doing it because we thought that was the right thing to do to take care of people individually uh, because we had read books. I don't know if you ever heard of these books called Away With All Pest by Joshua Horn, who was like the leading Western doctor that Mao Zedong recruited to work um, after the revolution. Um, you know, we had read Che Guevara's, you know, writings on revolutionary medicine and a lot more. You know, that's kind of like where we're, Norman Bethune, who was probably the most important, at least, you know, white communist physician who actually um, joined Mao at, at, right at the end of the Long March. Um, so, you know, we were inspired by those kind of people or people were inspired historically um, by, you know, African-American doctors who were unrecognized, for example, the first heart transplant, you know, in the United States was done by an African-American doctor who then died on the steps of the public hospital in Atlanta in a car accident because he wouldn't, they, he wouldn't be taken care of because he was black in the 1920s. And he, he was, that's where Provident Hospital came from in Chicago. 
So, you know, whether you were black, brown or white, you had these, you know, inspirational figures and they weren't all men, by the way. <laughs> um, but I'm just, you know, naming some. And and so basically, you know, we all went into one form or another of what we call social medicine. But that began to tail off in the 80s, the way that a lot of other things in the movement disappeared. Um, and now, um, the last 20 or 30 years, you have people who are pretty much individualists a lot of times. Now, the exception to this rule are the almost 200 medical students in the United States who went to medical school in Cuba through the Latin American Medical School, which that started in 1998, 2000, but the Americans didn't start going until about 2002. So we have about 200 of them. And they're really the largest group by far of medical students who really have that similar kind of social consciousness to we that we have because they lived and learned in a country which by far has done things correctly, not just about COVID-19, even better than China or Vietnam, but everything else that's happened. You know, Zika, dengue, stop the first transmission from pregnant women to their children of HIV, you name it, you know, Cuba's pretty much done it. Um, so we're in a situation now where the scientists or the doctors that you hear or read about are kind of individualists and some of them are good people, but there's not a social movement, really a social consciousness for them to be a part of. Now, the exceptions to that are you have um, white coats, black lives matter. You know, those are both black and white Latino doctors who, who are, you know, supporting things like black lives matter. You have people involved against, you know, ice, um, particularly, particularly medical students and doctors along the border. But you don't have, you know, and that's starting to grow, and that's a really positive thing. Um, and then it's harder and harder for people to go to medical school, Vince. I mean, <laughs> when I finished medical school, and so check this out. I'm going to tell you two contradictory things that sound crazy probably to you and your readers. When I finished medical school in June of 19, two, 1974, the tuition at the largest medical school in the United States was $396 a quarter, which is the equivalent of about $1,180 a year, okay? Now the cost of medical school, including everything, living expenses, for a student at the same university, the largest public medical school or medical school in the country, is $50,000 a year. So when you go and walk down the hall, which you're welcome to come with me, of the, of the dean's office, and you see pictures of the graduates the last 60 years, most of the black students now at the University of Illinois are not African-Americans. Um, they are African-Americans in the sense, but they're, they're the sons and daughters of Nigerian physicians, you know, who can afford to go to a public medical school. So that's the other huge factor the last 20 years. It's just gotten worse and worse. Right. I, oh, it, I'll be back in one second. Sorry. That's okay. We won't even edit this out because. No, my boy. Ahorita, boy. Si quieres traer las escaleras. Oh, sí. Sorry, just a second.
aquí está. Ahorita voy. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. Even though I'm retired, I got lots of people. I don't know how they get my phone number or know me, but they're they have a lot of COVID questions. So, <laughs> hey, you you like you said earlier though, man, you put your. Uh, it's not like you're just out here talking about it. I mean, you, the reason I respect you so much is because your your hands are always in it. You know what I mean? You're always doing it. You're involved with different campaigns, organizations, strikes, and just as you know, yeah, you're you're the kind of we need like we need to clone you and make about you know ten thousand doctor airmans and we would be a lot better off um well you too man we need to clone you oh thank you um let me because i want to the thing i think i'm that we'll do if you're okay with it is i think we should schedule a second interview because i have so many more questions to ask you sure but i would like to kind of end on something that you touched on a little bit before and it seemed to me like it's something you'd want to talk about and maybe end with and that is tonight we have a presidential debate uh, neither of us, I think, are happy with the uh, uh, Democratic nominee, of course, sort of represents all of the worst elements of neoliberalism and, and U.S. empire and all of this. Um, <clears throat> we have an election in November, hopefully, <laughs> as you mentioned. Um, what do you see sort of moving forward? I know all this work continues, the union organizing, the community organizing, but I'm... I'm Outside of those sort of fundamentals, that the work continues no matter what, what do you see sort of moving forward? What would you like to see on the left? I know I would like to see more of a united front, less organizations operating in their sort of little silos and on their specific issues and more collaboration. Um, that's broadly speaking, but I'm sort of wondering, you know, what do you see moving forward here in the next few months? Well, I think you named it, and I'd love to have another conversation that includes this. I only have about like three to five minutes. So here's here's the fun first thing is, I think the reason that the and I think you know from knowing you, and I hope we can work together more um, in the future, like right away. <laughs> but from knowing you from the past several years, um, I think you're a big believer also in the idea of uniting the many to defeat the few. And I think that. The reason, and I also think you're a big believer that the left is in a very weak position your entire lifetime, and even my entire lifetime. And I think the major reason for that is what happened in December of 1935, uh, when the common turn um, in Moscow, you know, under the direction of Joseph Stalin, uh, dictated to every communist party in the world to literally flip-flop from a united front to a popular front. Uh, from one minute attacking justifiably Franklin Delano Roosevelt to then supporting him in the 1936 presidential campaign. Now, we can debate tactical questions, but the strategic uh, result of that for the last 85 years has been a complete disaster. So in this case for the election, um, my view is what Vladimir Lenin wrote several essays that are collected, I would really encourage um, your readers, they can find these on A Books and some of the other used book sites. Um, There's several different volumes that were actually published in English of stuff that Lenin wrote about the U.S. political system that are extremely important and relevant today. 
And what he basically said was, you cannot ignore the political or electoral system in the United States. However, what has to happen is that is secondary to building, as Samir Amin and many other philosophers who have left us, unfortunately, in the last year, including Metsaros from Hungary and others, said, the primary thing is we must build an extra parliamentary struggle. And that then electoral politics, this election, then is in the context of an extra parliamentary struggle. It's not one or the other, it's what's primary. And the reason that we're so weak now, Vince, is because for 85 years, everything has come down to being within the paradigm of the electoral legislative arena. This doesn't mean that we don't propose legislation, that we don't at least consider the Green New Deal, although I hate that term. So what does that mean now for the next five weeks? It means that whoever we are, we have to vote against Trump and bite the bullet and vote for Biden. You know, there's a very interesting interview you may have seen uh, of Amy Goodman interviewing um, a pretty, a very good academic lawyer last week who said, you know what? We have no formal mechanism anywhere in law or the constitution to do anything if a president refuses to step down. And we better get ready and better take seriously the fact that Trump is not going to step down if he, if after one week, two weeks, or who knows how long it's going to take, Biden wins the vote. The other thing, of course, is this idea that Republican-controlled legislators can basically nullify the Electoral College um, for their state. These are all life and death issues now. This is no longer a question of like something that could possibly happen. No, we have to think this is probable at this point. And what my advice to people is that the most important states that are swing states. Just cut off. I don't know if that was us or him. Ours is frozen, actually. Thing to do about the fact that, you know, it's not just a 17-year-old who came from Antioch, Illinois, to kill two people in Kenosha. There's lots of homegrown Wisconsinites who are going to try, under the direction of Trump saying every able-bodied person should disrupt the election, who are going to try to disrupt the election, particularly in black and brown neighborhoods of Milwaukee, you know, Green Bay, other places, Native American reservations in Wisconsin. So whoever we are, whatever we do, um, I don't really know the situation in Indiana. Um, I don't know if there's a chance that that could be, Trump could be defeated there. But um, whoever we are, we have got to, first of all, literally vote as early as possible, either in person or preferably by mail, if that's possible. Secondly, tell everybody to vote. Um, You know, this is the first time in my life I've ever said this. But I had, um, you know, all of my grandfather's, um, his father, his, his, uh, not his mother, but another woman that my great-grandfather married, uh, and their six children were put in trains to go to Auschwitz. Um, Three of them escaped and joined the resistance. (laughs) So this is not a kind of theoretical question for me, Uh, like, like lots of other people not just Jews, but other people. And it's not just World War II. Um, This is a question now of life or death. And it's a question where we have to defend the democratic right of voting, where we have to not have any illusions about Biden, 
because all he's going to do is enable fascism as opposed to directly support it like Trump. But we have to vote for him against Trump. We have to defend the democratic rights, particularly of of African-Americans and Latinos to vote in this election and white working class people uh, in cities and towns. So I think that's what we have to do. Um, and then we better get ready during this time of what's going to happen the night of the election and for the next several weeks after that. This is going to be something we could never have imagined even a few months ago that could theoretically happen. Hey, man, I thought you were an eternal optimist. <laughs> I, I am an optimist. No, I know. I just, I'm, I got to mess with you. I got to mess with you. I know. I got to mess. I'm probably an eternal cynic who is also an optimist, but no, um, I, I think you're right on Howard. I mean, the, it's exactly the kind of advice that, you know, we've been giving our allies and, you know, comrades in the region, people we're working with friends, family, anyone. Um, yeah. Get out, vote and get ready. Right. Well, listen, I'm sorry. I have to leave. No, I'd love to do it. Let's second, do it again. Uh, you know, whenever you want to do it, and cool. let's figure out other ways we could work together, including like having a Zoom, you know, meeting with your folks, uh, our folks. You know, we could probably get at least 10 people from different parts. We have people on the south side, the west side of the city, as well as the north side. So let's do it. It would be great. All right. I'm thank down. you so much, man. Yeah. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Take care, man. Miss you. Okay. You've bye -bye. been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C-Media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.